0: I'm Khalil Ekolona, and this is Nashville. The holiday season is a time when the arts really take center stage here in Nashville. I know, you're probably thinking, Khalil, we live in Music City. I get it. But the performing arts really do shine at this time of year, and they've become a central part of the culture where we can see a ballet, sing along with a choir, even take in a play. What is life like for performers at this time of year? How did the pandemic affect their livelihoods? Later this hour, we'll talk with some of the people who helped stage some of our city's most festive productions. But first, Tennessee Supreme Court recently ruled that the state's mandatory 51-year life sentence for juveniles convicted of homicide was cruel and unusual punishment. It's the highest sentence for a single juvenile charge in the entire country. As long as this ruling does not get appealed, juvenile lifers will be eligible for a hearing in front of a parole board after serving 25 years of their sentence. WPLN criminal justice reporter Paige Flager has been following the story and she joins us now. Hey, Paige, welcome back.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for being here. So. How many people does this decision impact?
1: Yeah, so the Tennessee Department of Corrections says that there are 122 people who are currently incarcerated and were convicted of murder as juveniles and sentenced to at least that 51 years um, behind bars before they could get a parole hearing.
0: So why is 51 years considered a life sentence?
1: Yeah. So research has shown that every year someone spends in prison takes two years off of their life expectancy. Mm. Um, So by the time many of these juveniles finish 51 years, they're in their late 60s or 70s. Given that diminished life expectancy, a lot of people who live in prison for that long won't live to see that parole date, which is why it's considered similar to a life sentence.
0: Okay. You know, there's been a lot of attention on these juvenile sentences in recent years. Can you walk us through some of the high-profile cases and advocacy that preceded this ruling?
1: Yeah, so one of the most famous juvenile life sentence cases is that of Cyntoia Brown Long. She was convicted of first-degree murder in 2006 after she admitted to killing um, Johnny Allen who was a 43 year old man who paid her for sex and she was 16 at the time she says that she shot him in self defense when he was reaching for a gun Uh, and she was actually granted clemency after her case drew a lot of national attention there was a documentary about her from PBS and then there were also celebrities that came out and backed her like Kim Kardashian and Rihanna Um, and then Al Jazeera recently did a documentary Called Fault Lines. Um, the the series is called Fault Lines uh, about Elmer Nance. Um, mm-hmm. He's a Knoxville man who received what's essentially a life sentence for felony murder in 1997, and he was 16 when the crime happened and didn't actually pull the trigger. Uh, and then, of course. All of these cases are set against the background of a lot of advocacy from groups like the ACLU, No Exceptions Prison Collective, and the Choosing Justice Initiative.
0: Right. We did an episode about Alamir and some of those advocacy episodes back in June called Tennessee's 51-Year Life Sentences. You know, all of that was leading up to this Tennessee Supreme Court case. Yeah. So let's go into more depth about this ruling. What did just justices say in their opinions?
1: Yeah, they basically said that an automatic mandatory 51 years for a young person who committed homicide with no ability for a judge to use any discretion and look at circumstances surrounding the crime or their age uh, amounts to cruel and unusual punishment and therefore is a, a violation of the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution. Um, justices noted that the U.S. Supreme Court has actually already ruled that juveniles should not face the death penalty and that mandatory sentences of life without parole are unconstitutional for young people. Um, so because of those rulings, most states in the country have abandoned mandatory sentencing for juvenile homicide offenders. Mm. Um, but Tennessee has has not. So. Uh That's, that's what the, the folks who said, you know, we can't have this as, as part of our laws anymore. This practice is unconstitutional. Um, there were a couple of justices who dissented and said that basically this type of thing, sentencing, should be left up to the state legislature.
0: Now, so- Okay, so what happens next? I mean, this doesn't mean that people sentenced to life as teens will all be let out or right. automatically, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. The doors to prison are not automatically opened for these folks. Mm-hmm. Um, people will be referred to the parole board after they've served 25 years of their sentences. So that's a return back to what the law was before the 51-year uh, rule was passed during you know, the tough-on-crime era of the 80s and 90s. And so some of those 100 122 people have already served 25 years, so they'll be referred more immediately to the parole board, other folks, once they hit that 25-year mark. So it'll kind of be a rolling mm. deadline for different people.
0: Now, could the parole board decide that someone is not ready despite this ruling?
1: Yes. The board could definitely double down um, and and say that someone is not ready to get out yet. Uh, and one of the complicating aspects of that that I've been thinking about a lot is you know, most of these folks living inside the prison had a notion that they were probably never going to get out again. Um, and that breeds like a lot of hopelessness. And it's not a great motivator to do the types of things that parole boards look for mm-hmm. to see if someone should be allowed back out into society. Um, Preston Shipp is a former prosecutor, and he was actually one of the prosecutors that argued against the release of Cintoya Brown Long. Um, Since then, he's kind of made this pretty massive perspective shift. He's a criminal justice reform advocate now, and he works with a campaign for fair sentencing of youth. And he's hoping that the parole board sort of takes into account all of these moving pieces of Tennessee's laws when they're reviewing these cases.
2: Don't be afraid to give that person a second chance, you know, especially if you're talking about somebody who thought that they might never really be parole eligible, and now they are. You know, if you can see over the past few years that this person is investing in life outside prison, you know, chances are they're a very safe person. You know, I mean, these these are some of the, the, the lowest recidivism rates in the country, you know, as people who are serving time for first degree murder.
1: And then add in the fact that, you know, there's kids have a massive capacity for change. The brain is very elastic at at these ages. And so ship says that many of these juvenile lifers are really excellent candidates for parole.
0: So what's the reaction been like from people who are currently in prison?
1: Yeah, people are really hopeful, which, like mm. we were talking about, is pretty rare for juvenile lifers. Um, I actually interviewed a gentleman named Howard Atkins. He is incarcerated, um, and I interviewed him in a joint interview with the Tennessee Lookout. And originally, Howard was looking at a parole hearing in 2051, mm. about 30 years from now. Yeah, After this decision, he's actually eligible for a hearing in three years.
0: What's Howard's story?
1: Yeah, so Howard grew up um, his whole life surrounded by abuse. Uh, and despite that, by all accounts, people say that he was a really gentle and smart kid. Um, Howard's actually asking for clemency from Governor Bill Lee. And in his clemency application, people submit all these letters about him. And one of the ones that, that stuck out to me the most was um, this story about Howard uh, in, in a school uh, science class where... The assignment was like to find bugs out in the wilds and then like pin them to a board and like kill them. And Howard really didn't want to kill any of the bugs, and so he asked mm. his science teacher if he could like videotape the bugs in their like natural environment and submit that as his um, project. So he's just he's he's a very gentle and kind man. Um, in that same ent- uh, application, the clemency application, one of Howard's family members said like. You know, his early life was very similar to being in prison. His mom really struggled with her mental health, had been in several abusive relationships, and she relied on Howard heavily in those situations for protection um, until abuse between Howard's stepdad and his mom escalated. She asked for a divorce Uh, Howard was really afraid that the stepdad wasn't going to let them leave. Um, and so one night he ended up killing him with a baseball bat and called the police on himself. Uh, Mm. and he was actually given a plea deal for 13 years. Um, but his mom encouraged him to turn that down and go to trial. And he was sentenced to 51 years instead.
0: Man, that's a story. Wow. What has Howard been like during this time in prison?
1: Yeah, I think in this clemency report, it's very clear that Howard stands out in a lot of different ways. Uh, In all his time in prisons, we're talking decades now, more of his life in prison than he lived outside of prison. uh, He hasn't gotten a single write up, which is like pretty much unheard of. Um, he volunteers to sit on suicide watch for other incarcerated folks. He's in a band, he's a, a churchgoer, and he's also really helped be an advocate for changes to state policies when it comes to that 51-year life sentence. Um, and he shared some of his thoughts with us on a crackly call from prison. Okay. They haven't matured. We don't. It's. It to me, it feels like a double
0: standard. We don't trust. I'll, I'll say, kids. You know, people under eighteen. We don't trust them to to vote or to drink. But if somebody under eighteen
2: is the victim of a crime, everybody says, "Oh, the poor child." But if that same person
0: is the perpetrator, it gets into, "Well, what a horrible monster they must be." And the thing is, most. Well, I'd, I'd say every other juvenile lifer that I've met were in. Some kind of bad circumstances that led to their crime. It wasn't that,
3: that you know they were sitting there like, yeah, I just like to go kill somebody today. If they were in a abusive home or they're involved in a gang
1: or there was some circumstance. And he's really hopeful that this dis- decision is going to stand, and he'll have a chance to get out and continue some of that advocacy work. He wants to help young people uh, try not to get involved with the justice system in the first place.
0: So. What's next? And could could this decision be challenged?
1: Yeah. So the attorney general could appeal this decision to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, I reached out to AG Skermetti and did not get a reply from his office. Um, we'll start seeing folks getting re- referred to the parole board, of course. Um, but a lot of advocates are really hoping that this is just the first of many reforms to make Tennessee's justice system more focused on rehabilitation than on punishment.
0: Paige Flager is WPLN criminal justice reporter. You can find her story at WPLN.org. Paige, again, thanks for being here and always. Thanks, thanks for having me. Thanks for your reporting. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll take a look at what the performing arts community has in store for this holiday season. Is this your favorite time of the year for the performing arts? What is your favorite holiday show? Tweet us at This is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. As we move deeper into the winter holiday season, it feels like our calendars fill up quickly. There are office parties, family gatherings, and just taking time to enjoy the season with friends. One of the treasures of the season are the performances. A big show is something for everyone to enjoy, and the performing arts community here in Nashville doesn't let us down. Plays, musical symphonies, and of course, dancers display mastery of their craft, all while bringing much-needed holiday cheer. My next guests work hard all year to make sure our holidays come with a big smile. Colleen Phelps is musical director at WUOL and was host of the podcast Classically Speaking from Nashville Public Radio. And Tony Marks is Vice President of Marketing and Communication for the Tennessee Performing Arts Center, also known as TPAC. Colleen, Tony, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville.
3: Thanks for having us. Thank you.
0: Really great to have you. So, all right, let's hear about what's happening this holiday season. Tony, what does TPAC have in store for Nashvillians? Sure. Well, first we need to say when we talk about TPAC, we talk about what TPAC presents
4: as an organization but we're also the performance home of three resident companies. So we're talking about the Nashville Ballet, we're talking about the Nashville Opera, the Nashville Repertory Theater. TPAC itself is going to present uh, Christmas with C.S. Lewis, which is a, a limited theater experience in mid-December. We're also going to close out the month with a, a one-night performance of Mannheim Steamroller. Those are sort of the traditional holiday things that we're going we're gonna to present. Um, but, of course... Um, The Repertory Theater has a performance of Elf the Musical that is going to open December 21st and then Uh, The ballet is going to have Nashville's Nutcracker back in the building in Jackson Hall starting December 9th. So one of the things that's really interesting for us as we approach the holidays is to do that exact thing, to turn our venues over to the resident companies. It's one of the ways we serve the resident companies, um, and we're privileged to have them in the building. Why
0: is it important to give space to the resident companies like that? It's a huge
4: part of our mission. I mean, it it absolutely is one of the ways we serve the community. So um, we do it in a variety of ways, obviously, in what we present ourselves and our arts and education programs and community engagement programs, but you know, to be the performance home of three local um, high-quality, just uh, artistic organizations that do amazing work. Um, the the opera and the ballet and the rep all have really stellar reputations, not just locally but even nationally. And it's, a, it's just a privilege to be able to work with them, look at our calendar and figure out how to give them the platform that they need to present their series. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, Colleen, you're always keeping up with the classical side of things. What can people expect this time of year?
3: You can expect, um, like always in classical music, what the industry is always trying to do is balance tradition and innovation. And I think that the traditional things like Nashville's Nutcracker, like Handel's Messiah, like lessons and carol services at churches all over town, which are really beautiful experiences all on their own, balanced with the innovation of something like, and you'll hear more about this later, I'm sure, Home Alone, live with a live soundtrack at Mm -hmm. the Skimmerhorn and Elf The musical, things that are new traditions, new exciting things. Um, And so you see, again, that balance of innovation with all these such well-loved traditions.
0: What makes Nashville a uniquely perfect place for holiday performances?
3: I think um, seeing all of these venues sort of do turn themselves over to the local artists. And I think one of my favorite parts of this season is where local artists get such a large chance to shine because there's, you know, a lot of local ensembles that will bring in guests and bring in features. But it's Music City. We've got all the way through our classical music. We've got incredible world-class Grammy-winning musicians all over town, and you can see them because... All you have to do is look around; they are performing mm-hmm. constantly this time of year.
0: You know, it's really great that perform the, the that the performing arts community is up and running for the holidays. The pandemic really put a damper on performances. Tony, tell me, how did the pandemic affect your efforts at TPAC?
4: Oh, in so many ways. I mean, it's it was. Um... We talk about a sea change, but it was actually multiple sea changes for not just the the nonprofit industry or the arts organizations, or here in Nashville, which is one of the most vibrant arts communities in the country, and was hit and so hard because we have such an ecosystem here. Um, but also in the industries, you know, we had um, a major. Um, a racial awakening about equity among the nonprofit community and a lot of majority white industries and, and organizations. Um, and so the art is changing. The audience is changing. Um, getting back to speed to put something on the stage is, in, in some ways, the easiest piece of it. It, it does still feel like we're, we have a foot on the gas and a foot on the brake. Mm. Um, and I don't know that we're 100% back yet. But the, the ripples of everything that we have experienced during the shutdown I don't think we've received all of them yet. I think I think we're waiting to see what's going to happen in the next four or five years. And right now, it's really about listening to our audiences, watching those trend lines, making sure they, you know, what do they want to see? How do they want to prioritize their time? Are they ready to come back and do a certain thing? And and then what is the art that's going to be coming down the road in the next few years that we're going to have the opportunity to present?
0: A lot of changes. Can you tell me a little bit more about the racial reckoning you mentioned? How is T. responding? Sure. well, we spent uh, a lot of off time not having something
4: on our stages um, to really look inward. Uh, and I think a lot of organizations did it. So um, evaluating the diversity of our staff, what we put on our stages, our leadership, um, how can we be more representative and uh, and then also to, to to think about what we present on our stages, uh, the shows that are coming, making um, purposeful choices um, and serving the community in, a, in another way, identifying, our mission as it separates from what we put on our stages to how do we serve the community as an organization. So how do we contribute to equity? How, what does that look like for us? And so we put all of that on the table over many months with um, a staff and, and, and spend some time breaking into committees and figuring out how to change our organization top to bottom. We have hired a chief diversity and inclusion officer, Dr. Mary Clark, who's um, just been an excellent addition to our leadership team. And, um, and and her work is also not just outward-facing, it's inward-facing. So how are we changing as an organization to be more mindful of wellness and inclusion within the organization? How are we training and uplifting people? So it is, um, it is just a, a, a major
0: shift in and, and our purpose as an organization. You know, I can imagine this time of year becomes very, very busy for performers. And Colleen, you have a family full of musicians. I do. What is it like this time of year in your household?
3: It's wild. I would say that um last year as live performance came back, um I I even did an audio essay on it for WPLN because it was like being dunked in cold water. I said I was in sensory overload all the time mm. after having a year away from everything. You know, I was so aware of just like how loud the rumble of the pipe organ under my feet was and Mm. things like that, that I had never really noticed before came back so prominently. But I mean, yeah, I've, you know, one, the travel of who has which car and when so we can all get to all of our rehearsals and all of our performances. And, you know, which dress rehearsal are you going to be at? Because you're triple booked this day and you have to figure it out. And as laundry, I have to make sure that all the tux shirts and all the black pants are washed and ironed. And it's, you know, there's a constant list of, okay, what's tomorrow? What do we have to have clean tomorrow? What do we have to have ready tomorrow? Is there gas Mm. in the car for tomorrow to get through just each single day of who's at which rehearsal and when
0: what about that's a lot by the <laughs> way that's a bunch
3: but we do love it yeah
0: yeah i can see but wh- what is it What is? what about working musicians in town like what's their work schedule like these days
3: um i know that for some concerts especially if symphony musicians get booked they're often you know booked for something outside of the symphony around not, they'll come straight between performances of The Nutcracker and go play another concert. Wow. You can see them everywhere. And so it's It's tax season, but hmm. instead of accountants, for musicians. And instead of spreadsheets, it's music making.
0: Now, I know you said you love it, but how do you deal with having this breakneck schedule while everyone else is relaxing and chilling?
3: Do people relax during December? I don't know that they necessarily do. They're at concerts. They're going to see family. They're cooking. They're all scheduling themselves. It's just we have this other thing that we're also doing um, along with it. And, you know, there's something incredible about knowing how much you're a part of everyone's holiday tradition. And there's something really especially gratifying about it this time of year, where you know that there are people who rely on your concert being there. You know, uh, the special Amal in the Night Visitors is replaying on Nashville Classical Radio, and this is the fourth year we'll be playing it. And it was, we got message after message when we first aired that performance on the radio because people had grown up watching them all in the night visitors Mm. every Christmas night. So they were so glad to have a local version that they knew would become a new holiday tradition. And knowing that, you know, you created a tradition for someone is just a wonderful feeling. And that's, that's hugely gratifying. It's always really exciting to do that.
0: If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil lake We're talking this hour about what the performing arts scene has in store for the holiday season. My guests are Tony Marks and Colleen Phelps. So, you know, we're talking about the jam-packed schedules of people in the performing arts world that they have during this holiday season. Tony, there are a lot of moving parts. How do you support all the events that are happening?
4: Yeah, we have to uh, make it a priority. It's It's just, again— Especially coming out of the pandemic, it's such a renewed focus on the well being of our staff. TPAC is fortunate to have a, a large community of dedicated and extremely talented technicians. Uh, the people who are, you know, hanging the lights and doing the sound. We have an amazing events team and a guest services team and an amazing box office. I'm fortunate enough to work in the marketing department where my team can work on a show, get it up and running, and then we can walk away and go to the next thing. Mm-hmm. Everyone that I just mentioned in those other departments, they're there day after day after day, whether it's a TPAC thing, a rental client, or a resident company. And so uh, I think in the same time, pre-pandemic, TPAC would have been, the the, the attitude would have been, fill the calendar, get as many people involved as possible, get as many shows on the calendar. Um, Now we're trying to do more with less. So it's about quality over quantity, Mm -hmm. um, intentional choices about what we put on our stages, but also to give the people who make it happen um, realizing we're an organization of human beings who also during the holidays would like to see their families and rest and rejuvenate, you got to make that balance. you got to find it. Now, it's hard to do in the holidays. When you have the Nutcracker in and the Rep in and everybody's in, sometimes they do not get to take much of a break in December. Um, what we as an organization have to do is say, okay, how's January look? How, mm-hmm. do, we, how do we take it easy for January so mm-hmm. all these
0: people can you know take some time off? You know, you guys are all running around with high demand. Colleen, what are some of the most, what are some of the biggest holiday performances people are in town or lining up to see?
3: Nashville's Nutcracker is an icon. Absolutely. Um, And it's set here in Nashville um, using the World's Fair, the historic World's Fair as its backdrop. Um, and it's timing. And in the party scene at the beginning, the figures are historic figures who actually lived in Nashville. Paul Vasterling was really conscientious to create a local nutcracker. Christmas at Belmont, which will also be televised, is open to the public for its performances for the first time. Um, Home Alone and Messiah at the symphony are always so much fun. Um there's some other things that are maybe a little smaller, but also really cool that are around. The Nashville Philharmonic has two performances, one at Plaza Mariachi with um, Christmas music, but also music by Gabriella Lena Frank and William Grant Still. Um, the Ornaments perform the Charlie Brown Christmas album live mm, no, cool. every year. That's cool. Um, Portara has a choral concert Um there's there's so much that you can find really any weekend you can open the holiday calendar of any venue and find something really exciting
0: do you have a favorite
3: i do love nashville's nutcracker i think that's really obvious you can hear more about it on classically speaking there's an episode called love magic and a mechanical tree where paul Vasterling tells us all about it i also keep a really close place in my heart for lessons and Carol services my husband's the music director at West End United Methodist it's really special for us and those experiences are just so deep and meaningful and often very quiet mm-hmm. which is a really lovely thing this time of year
0: yeah I, I can take quiet all the time now Tony what's the TPAC event that people are most excited about this year
4: in the holiday season specifically yeah um, we do have this this like I mentioned this limited, Theatrical engagement of uh, Christmas with C.S. Lewis. This is um, an actor, David Payne, who's come through TPAC from time to time and done various portrayals of C.S. Lewis. And this Christmas show is 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 pretty exciting. It has a a really strong following, and, and it's a, it's a nice one man show, very uplifting, very interesting. Um, you know, I think uh, I'm gonna throw a, another plug to a, a resident company and. I speak from a personal point of view, but you know I have a ten-year-old son, so I think Elf the musical is probably going to be on our list um, for sure. So I'm um, just you know making time for that.
0: What? Why do you think people really get into holiday performances?
4: Well, you, you, both of you have alluded to it in this conversation, but um, you know the holidays are about bringing people together. You're you're making new memories. You're passing down a tra- uh, tradition. Um, the theater and and whether you're seeing dance or music or anything like that, it is a shared experience. It's a shared emotional bonding experience. And so um, when you're in that mindset for the holidays anyway, you're looking for connections. The arts have a very unique superpower to provide that connected connectivity, it's it's we provide the place, and the shared experience, and the heightened the heightened experience, um, and also when you're doing something that's music and dance, um, often you don't have to worry about a language barrier. And so, art the, the, the unique qualities that make art impactful anyway the ability to cross barriers and to put us all in the room and for us to remove, leave all that at the door and, and go on a journey together, um, that's perfectly suited for the holidays because that's what you're looking for anyway. So you're looking for joy and hope and inspiration and
0: connection and the arts and the holidays go hand in hand. Colleen, what do you think creates the holiday magic of performing arts?
3: It's so funny that you use the term holiday magic. I, I again, go back to that episode, Love Magic in a Mechanical Tree, and You ask Paul Vasterling, what's The Nutcracker about? And he says it's about magic. And it's about those moments that every single one of these Christmas shows is going to have a moment that's going to just... Get you and in lessons and carol services. There's often you know the David Wilcox arrangement of Oh, Come All You Faithful" and the chord on word in word of the Father and the second to last verse. Like I, people have T-shirts with the sheet music for this chord okay. on it. it. It's it just rumbles and it it surprises you and it makes you go oh, in that moment. Or and and it's always there's some little thing like that when you know. Buddy the Elf gets Santa's sleigh going again. You you kind of go, and when, you know, in Miracle on 34th Street, Santa speaks to the little Dutch girl, you go, those uh-huh. moments of magic, those moments of surprise, those moments are what the season's all about. And the arts, we're, we're the, it comes from our holly jolly hands, y'all. <laughs>
0: Colleen Phelps is music director at WUOL, and Tony Marks is vice president of marketing and communications for TPAC. I want to thank you both for being with us today, and happy holidays to you guys. Thank you too. You too. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk with performers of the choral arts. Join the conversation. What's your favorite holiday music tradition? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil A. Colonna and this is Nashville. One thing I know for sure is that there will be plenty of holiday performances going on at schools all across the city. I remember those days, singing in the school chorus for our families and classmates. It's perfect, right? Who doesn't like carolers and choirs? My next guests help bring those sweet harmonic sounds to our ears. Tucker Biddlecombe is the chorus director for the Nashville Symphony, and Deshaun Burton is assistant professor professor of voice at Vanderbilt Blair School of Music, bass baritone, and member of Room Full of Teeth. Deshaun, Tucker, thank you so much for being here. Welcome. Thank this you This so is much. Nashville. Thanks, Khalil. So, you know, Tucker, as chorus director, you work with dozens of voices at a time. What's it like bringing all of those different parts together?
2: Well, our chorus at the Nashville Symphony is about 160 people. They're all volunteers, and they all bring a significant amount of skills to bear from their musical experiences throughout the course of their life. You know, uh, dealing with so many, such a diverse group of talents and backgrounds, you know, really our main goal is get to the heart of the music, um, which is, of course, a wonderful, you know, appropriate stylistic performance but also the emotional content of the music. And I think that people are really drawn uh, to music, especially at this time of year. You know, it it brings back a lot of childhood memories, brings back a lot of just personal experiences, and I think those connections really, really help us uh, create contextual understanding of music, and that leads to great performance.
0: What do you love about this line of work? (laughs) Because it can't be easy, 160 voices.
2: No, no. You know know what I love about uh, a choir? Uh, nobody sits on the bench is that everybody has a job everybody has a role you know i've i've got great singers professional singers like deshaun who just really really love to sing and you know they want to be part of something great all the way to somebody who you know has sung in church choirs or has a little bit less musical experience and uh, you know wants to wants to play their role and so my favorite thing about this is that everybody gets to be in the choir everybody mm-hmm. gets a uh, you know, a certain measure of satisfaction from a wonderful performance. And uh, it's just dealing with people on a personal level and getting to the, the heart of who they are. And that's journey is through music, and it's wonderful.
0: I mean, even though people are volunteers, it doesn't hurt to be in Music City, right? I mean, I've gone to karaoke and it's like American Idol out there. People can sing in this town.
2: (laughs) You know, we were just talking in the hallway that, uh, you know, you'll never see anything bad in Nashville uh, because nobody bad at music ever gets a job. Mm -hmm. You know, even on a Tuesday afternoon walking through downtown, you're going to see somebody playing their dream gig. Um, So good is fun, you know, and, and everybody here is good. And yeah, you're right. It's not hard to build a chorus uh, of of fantastic musicians in a city like this.
0: Now, Deshaun, you're a professional classical singer. How did you discover your passion for singing?
5: I got into all of this uh, when I was in high school, and basically was told to uh, you know kind of join choir and uh, enjoy singing with friends. And really, since that moment, I've just enjoyed singing with friends, and that's really what music is about to me: sharing just this wonderful passion that i have for music and and for this kind of singing with with my friends on stage and with friends in the audience
0: now as a performer what's this time of year like for you
5: it's very busy <laughs> we get we get a lot of requests to seeing lots of different performances, everything from uh, pieces like Messiah, which happens at many orchestras and community choruses all around the country, to uh, wonderful things like um, caroling, uh, you know, kind of opportunities, or or uh, all all sorts of um, you know, sort of end of year uh, hurrah performances that that we uh, we get to enjoy at, at this time
0: of year. Do your neighbors hit you up and ask you to join the neighborhood caroling group? They they, they absolutely should anytime. Okay, okay. He's <laughs> Said it, y'all. Yeah. Hit them up now. What are some of your favorite songs to sing during the holidays? Oh, I that's that's a really
5: great question. I I I really like uh, the songs that I. I got to sing, uh, you know, as a kid. Uh, they're, they're a lot of fun. So any any of these kinds of, you know, carols just sort of bring me back to that to those moments as well. Uh, but but you really can't go wrong with um, "All I Want for Christmas" either. You know, the <laughs> Wham all version. All I Want for Christmas. Yeah. The, the uh, oh the what? The Wham version. <laughs> I was thinking of the <laughs> Mariah Carey version, but okay, <laughs> <maybe>. yeah.
0: <laughs> You're just listening to it in the car this morning too. So <laughs> nice. Now now, love it or hate it, Christmas music is got a whole it's a whole genre onto itself. But when it comes to classical Christmas music, there's one song that really stands out for a lot of folks. Okay, this man has some serious pipes, y'all. Deshaun, that was a clip of you singing Handel's Messiah with Boston Baroque. What's it like to perform this piece? It is uh, just
5: one of the, the biggest thrills uh, that that people who are trained in this kind of music get to do. Um, not only is it an amazing piece, uh, just in terms of the writing and in terms of the story, but but it's it's just so perfectly written for the voice that it... it allows you to shine your brightest uh, oh. really with with every piece. Um, so this this particular uh, piece is uh, it comes sort of toward the end of, of the whole Messiah and so you just have this this kind of great relief of, of being able to to kind of be at the end of the piece and everyone has has poured their hearts out on stage and and it's it's just a huge 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 thrill to sing a piece like that. Now what's different about being a soloist on this piece? When you're in the choir, uh, like Tucker was saying, you get to to sort of um, have have all of your your you know friends around you, and and you're you're sort of giving the sound uh, in in this way. When when you're out front uh, as a soloist, it's kind of like your 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 heart uh, is kind of on your sleeve, mm. uh, and it's a very vulnerable position. Uh, but but it's it's kind of a high risk high reward situation too when you really give your entire heart to a soloistic performance like that uh, you you just you just get this this great um, uh, emotional wave uh, you know as as you realize that you are, you know, kind of in in this long line of tradition straight back to Handel in, in this way and straight back to everyone who has sung this solo piece uh, in this way as well. So it's a really
0: very special thing. Mm-hmm. Now, Tucker, the symphony chorus performs the song as well. Can you tell us why this song is such a rich holiday tradition?
2: You know, it's kind of a mystery. And when when we talk to our fellow professional musicians, uh, you know, I think there's a there's a tendency for people to go, oh, here we go again. You know, well, there's a saying also in music, Messiah pays the bills. Uh, <laughs> you know, every December this thing comes around, and you know the expression of Black Friday is the it's the day after Thanksgiving when finally all the stores you know begin to make a little bit of money. Well, it I mean, Handel's Messiah is is that for us? You know, it's it's the time that we we become. You know, all right, we've got gigs again, and we've you know we've mm. become liquid. So we we have to really thank uh, George Frederick Handel for for writing that piece. I also think that uh, it's kind of a one stop shop for all of your liturgical needs. Hmm. You know, it's uh, there's a the first portion of the Messiah is solely about the birth of Christ. It's Christmas. But then, after the break, it is the passion of the Christ, you know, his, his crucifixion and resurrection. So actually the the sample that you heard, the trumpet shall sound, is an Easter uh, piece of music. And you know, although we often we, we almost always perform the Messiah in its entirety, uh, you know, no matter what the liturgical part of the year, it, it really is a an, an oratorio, meaning a you know, a drama like an opera, but no staging. Um, that that reaches a, a great deal of people in a really really profound way, and sometimes even transcends past the religiosity of the work, mm. um, just because of people's personal connections to to life and death and birth and uh, you know these these are timeless things that continue to come back no matter how advanced our society becomes.
0: Mm-hmm, true that. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host Khalil Lake-Alona. We're talking this hour about the performing arts scene during the holiday season. So you know we have these jam packed performance schedules you were talking about how it helps musicians finally get gigs again why is that so important to nashville mus- musicians and we did a piece about musicians being barely being able to afford to live in nashville anymore how does this kind of help them
2: well you know after the pandemic uh it things have been of course slow to come back and uh you know it, audiences have been slow to come back uh and just any time of the year where there can be live in-person performance, we're Deshawn and I are gifted to be able to to go out and do this. Um, you know, it's really easy to play a recording of something. Uh, you know, it, it, in this particular season, for whatever reason, people seem to value live singing, mm. live performing, live instruments you know it's like doing a wedding you know you don't want to press play at a wedding you want a string quartet to play or you want a trumpet to play or you want someone to sing and we're we're just really fortunate that in the month of december here in nashville is that there's a there's a propensity to, let's get real people out here to do this and let's let's create music because i i just don't think there's anything like it you know mm-hmm. it's a it's a completely unique experience to hear live music and we're in the perfect city for it uh you know and so i for whatever reason right now that value is up and it's it's great for us as professional musicians
0: now Deshaun, you are a professor at vanderbilt as well you're this busy musician running around how forward are you how, how, how- are you really looking forward to taking a break pretty soon with your heavy schedule? <laughs> I think everyone is looking forward to it
5: certainly. Um, it's it's just that time of year, you know, where you want to just have everything be, you know, at, at its absolute best. So uh, the students have been working incredibly hard all semester to to present final performances and and uh that that break uh you know is is kind of just over the horizon and and yeah, we're we're very much looking forward to it.
0: All right, so I got about a I'm gonna ask you this: You know, why does the holiday music, the music that's being played, that you all are singing, that's being performed by the symphony? Why does it really resonate with people so much? I think it resonates uh, for
5: for so many reasons, but most of them uh, tend to go back to because you know we we we've had this music with us for for such a long time. Um, the, these traditional pieces uh, for, from many different kinds of traditions, whatever whatever holiday music you're, uh, you're performing at this time of year, um, it has just this great effect of bringing everyone together. So that unifying effect um, is such a huge part of tradition and of, of everyone being able to come together uh, at the end of the year. And and it's it's just a really nice way to to sort of wrap up all of the work you know that that we've done in in a semester or at the end of the uh, of the calendar year as well. And um, I certainly think that that music is is a great representation of of our feelings uh, w- mm-hmm. with these traditions in this way.
0: We got about thirty seconds left. You know, we're talking about Nashville specifically, but this time of year, th- this music is a global thing, right, Tucker?
2: Yeah, I mean, you you you'll be hard pressed to go anywhere in the world and not be hearing this same piece, and that's actually what makes Messiah really interesting. It was the first big, huge hit you know, mm-hmm. in classical music. And and I, I really love what Deshaun said about when you sing this music, it brings you back to the hundreds and thousands of people who have sung it before. You know, if you wander into a church and hear an even song, you know, if you wander into a synagogue, you know, if you if you hear this music, it's going to take you back to the historical origins of, you know, just, just all the people who came before us.
0: Tucker Biddlecombe is chorus director for the Nashville Symphony. He was joined by Deshaun Burton, bass baritone and assistant professor of voice at Vanderbilt Blair School of Music. Thanks to you both for being with us. Happy holidays to you, gentlemen. You Thanks. too, Kilo. Same to you. All right, it's Friday. That means it's time for me to hop out of the studio and ride shotgun with one of our fellow Middle Tennesseans. In honor of today's performing arts theme, I rode around Germantown and Centennial Park with Drew Ogle executive director of the Nashville Repertory Theater. The native Tennessean picked me up at Nashville Public Radio Headquarters, and we hit the road. Time for us to buckle up.
6: Anybody who knows me, the idea of of doing a a shotgun interview, they are laughing their butts off, because they know I can't drive and I'm geographically challenged.
0: Okay. (laughs) Well, this is gonna be fun. Oh. Are you a native Nashville? I am
6: not a native Nashvillian, although I am a native Tennessean, so I do still feel like this is home. Okay. So I came to Nashville in 2018, and so we were really just kind of getting rocking at the Rep. Um, when the
0: pandemic hit.
6: Mm -hmm. And so my time in Nashville has been uh, a little crazy.
0: Okay. All right, so let's back up a little bit. Okay. How did you get into working with theaters and the performing arts?
6: All right, when I was a kid, what I wanted to do more than anything when I grew up, was be a member of the rock group KISS.
0: Okay, (laughs)
6: yeah. So it started with music, and my mother uh, put me in guitar lessons. That turned out to not be successful because my hands are so small and they wouldn't go around the neck of a guitar. And so I jumped from there into piano lessons. And that's where my love for music really took off. Later on, when I was in high school, I started playing in the pits for the school musicals. Okay. And that's where my love for theater came from.
0: Okay, a couple things. Your okay. favorite drama Okay. and your favorite musical.
6: All right, my favorite drama is Angels in America.
0: Okay. Um,
6: it, it's uh, from the early 90s, and it's a play about um, every ism that exists in America, mm-hmm. whether it's racism or ageism or, um, you know, political division or anything like that. And um, I saw it in my early 20s. It impacted my life in a way that I can't describe. And my favorite musical is *Sunday in the Park with George* by Stephen Sondheim. Okay. Because it is about the passion of making art and what we give up in the process of doing so.
0: Mmm. Wow, that's deep. <laughs> Drew, we can go there. Yeah. <laughs> Think about how many things we give up in the process of making art.
6: So yes, um, you know it—it it takes over it takes over everything, really. There's a beautiful song, Inside in the Park with George, it's called Finishing the Hat. And it is about um, watching the world pass you by while you are singularly dedicated to this one task. Mm-hmm. In this case, it's the visual artist, George Sorot, and he's painting a hat. And one of the lyrics is, watching the world through the window while you finish the hat. Yeah.
5: How you watch the rest of the world from a window while you finish the hat, mapping out a sky.
0: What do you feel like
5: planning a sky?
0: What do you feel when
5: voices that come through the window go?
0: While to you do miss out on things, you know what? It really lets you get over FOMO. <laughs> yeah, that's or, for sure. <laughs> or any type of belief. But there is something wonderful when you look back at this piece of art that you created. And it tells so much of a story about who you were, mm-hmm. what you went through, what you missed out on, and then more importantly, I think, what you gained mm-hmm. in the process of that creation. Mm-hmm. And
6: sometimes it doesn't even matter if no one else sees that piece of art. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, sometimes you create it
0: just for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I understand you all are gearing up for a production of Elf.
6: Elf, yes, yes. Um, You know, one of the things I'm really excited about, about Nashville Repertory Theater, is that we are um, a large enough organization um, in this community that we can offer a little bit of something for everybody. Mm -hmm. And I think we should. I think that's our role in the community.
0: There's something special about the crowd making noise. Yeah. Then the lights dim, and they get quiet, and that curtain opens. Mm -hmm. And for two and a half to three hours, you are introduced to an entirely new world where it's really about your imagination taking over.
6: It is, it is. There's a song there called, um, it's called You There in the Back Row. Do You know that song? No. No, it it is about a performer that is performing, and and they're thinking about the people that they're connecting with in in the back row of the theater. Mm me when I sing my you know theater is ephemeral you know it happens once and it's gone. Yes. I mean, even though you might do the same production you know night after night after night, each individual performance is uh, just for, it lasts just for a moment mm-hmm. you know And I've been in the room in some of the most special uh, performances uh, that I could describe.
0: Thanks to everybody for taking that shotgun ride. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Magnolia McKay. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tutho. Shout out to our intern, Tori Hoover, and the masterminds behind our theme music, and the Blade, and the conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ecolona. We'll see you next week, everybody, and be good to each other.